1: Puja yoga we acknowledge the divinity within each of us along with the many physical benefits of the practice we also consciously encounter and nurture the flame of love and compassion within we honor through yogic practice the divinity inside and all around us puja yoga supports us in connecting with the divinity we all carry and through our practice we deepen our connections to inner peace health compassion Understanding and love. Puja is a common name in India. This spiritual name was given to me when I lived at the Kripalu Center in Western Massachusetts, USA in the 1980s. At the time, it was an ashram or spiritual community. Puja means seeing the highest, the divine, in everything. In the puja ceremony, the elements or earth, water, fire, air, and space slash ether are offered to the divinity within and around us. Traditionally, rice, water, candles, flower petals, and incense respectively are used to represent these elements. These are offered to a specific deity, incarnation of the divine, or to the divinity in any person, sprinkling each element in turn over a photo, portrait, living person, spiritual teacher, or beloved. Valeria interviews Sue Flam, the author of Restorative Yoga, with assists a manual for teachers and students of yoga in English and Spanish. A work that guides us to master the art of teaching and practicing restorative yoga and deep relaxation. A recourse for yoga teacher training programs, seasoned teachers, and students of yoga It includes a chapter on postures for pregnancy from conception to after birth and sequences for a variety of conditions. It includes over 100 photos to help you to understand each posture and a set of simple yet profound assists to take your students into deeper relaxation. With decades of teaching yoga to every level of practitioner in the US, Guatemala, Mexico, Cuba, Europe, South Africa and China, Sue Flam Puja delivers a clear, compassionate training manual to deepen your understanding of restorative yoga. Puja Sue Flam Susanna, 500 E R Y T, best selling author, yoga teacher trainer, and certified massage therapist, has been teaching yoga for more than 30 years. She has led numerous trainings, retreats, workshops, and thousands of classes around the world. Sue took her first class in transcendental meditation at age 12, her first hatha yoga class at age 16, and has continued her study and practice throughout her rich and diverse life. She spent six years on staff at Cripolo Center as a yoga teacher, massage therapist, program director, and cook. She has owned two yoga centers, managed a third, and managed a pre-postnatal learning center in the northeast of the USA. Originally certified in Kripalu Yoga, she went on to study Iyengar, Ashtanga, and Anusara yoga styles. Sue draws from a wealth of teaching experience, personal practices, and currently offers certification training along with retreats and classes. Devoted to her students, her teaching encourages stress release, physical opening, strengthening of the muscular and organ systems, bridging interconnections within, deep relaxation, and the cultivation of loving-kindness. She has taught in Mexico, Cuba, Guatemala, throughout Europe, China, South Africa, and in the USA. She recently returned from a month-long pilgrimage in India, Sue speaks English and Spanish fluently. She presently lives between the mountains and the shores of the Mediterranean Sea in Valencia, Spain. Here is the interview with Sue Flam.
0: In your own words, who is Sue Flam Puja? Well, I am
2: a woman who is on. Uh, the path of love, I would say. And one of my teachers, teachers, he would say, I'm a pilgrim on the path of love. And I feel like I am too. I am exploring what is love. And for me, actually, love is the highest energy. And I'm exploring that. How can I integrate and how do I integrate and how do I live on that path of love?
0: That sounds wonderful to me. (laughs) So, before we talk about some of the topics in your books, Restorative Yoga with Assists, a manual for teachers and students of yoga, and also your second book, 93 Prescriptions for Joy and Nature. I have a few warm-up questions. That was a long introduction. (laughs) I have a few warm-up questions, as I mentioned before. And the first one is about life. What is life to you, Sue?
2: These are profound questions. So life is a a journey. Um, It's an experience of being in a body and having many, many experiences that I think as I become older, I trust more in the perfect unfoldment of everything, though I always um, have kind of had that feeling of everything unfolding perfectly, though I forget that sometimes. But life is uh, an incredible experience, an incredible opportunity, and I'm so grateful to have this mm-hmm. one. Yeah.
0: What do you think is
2: the opposite of life? The opposite of life? I mean, the first thing that comes to me is death. But uh, life and death, but... I recently lost both of my parents. Yeah, being at my mother's death, particularly, it was kind of interesting because I've been at a number of births and being at her death was sort of like being at a rebirth in reverse. It's like when I've been at births, as you feel this, like the veils open and you feel the spirit coming in and being at my mom actually with her when she died, the veils opened and she went out but the energy was very similar because I could feel her spirit. So I don't know if the opposite of life is death.
0: Death might be part of life, right? But not quite the opposite.
2: Yeah. Part of.
0: What is the meaning of freedom to you?
2: I think the meaning of freedom is to be content inside so that I Don't have any preferences, that's being free. <laughs> There's, in, the, in the Tao, they say that the, the great way is easy for those with no preferences,
0: <laughs> and that's true, and <laughs> not that easy, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah,
2: what is your greatest joy? Well, many a few things actually. One is my daughter, I, I mean, she's just a joy bringer, and I, I called her that when she was younger. and Um, she's brought me so much joy and I think, um, well, so many things bring me joy, the practice of gratitude. I mean, my new book, 93 prescriptions of joy is just filled with ideas of, of how to cultivate more joy in our lives. And, um, so joy for me is being in nature, being with friends, um, family. Yeah. Joy is a wonderful thing to cultivate and focus on.
0: Right. What do you think is the world's greatest need at this
2: time? First thing that came to me is compassion. I think we need compassion, especially, you know, we're in the time of this COVID, it's it's uniting the world, the planet in a certain interesting way. I think we need always we need compassion for ourselves on this journey and for others because everybody's journey is unique and everybody's journey has to be honored because it's sacred in its own unfoldment. So, so yeah, I don't know if that answers, but yeah, I
0: think compassion. Yeah, I like that. Uh, it makes sense. Uh, what is love to you?
2: Yeah. Well, of course there's many definitions of love, but um, I grew up in a, what I call a religious atheist family. And so the word God was sort of like, you're, I mean, a lot of people have issues with the word God, but, I always was very drawn to spirituality. And um, so whenever someone talked about God, I would just put the word love in instead. Um, And it always worked. I was like, you know, to me, like God is love. You know, God is not something. It's just this loving presence, this loving energy. It's connecting with that higher energy that is love. And as I said earlier, I think um, during during the interview that love is... the the highest power and the most sacred power that we have here on the earth. And yeah, I'm I'm about it. I'm about love. That's, you know, really inspires me and um, guides me. And being in my heart is the place where I most love to be and sharing love.
0: What are some of the manifestations of love that you see on a daily basis within your own life and perhaps in the world?
2: Well, I think actually gratitude really connects us to uh, to love. And I, I, I'm a very big cheerleader. I, I think the practice of, of gratitude is extremely powerful. And, and I think gratitude connects us to love. How do I see? I see love so many ways in so many ways. Um, I just see, you know, parents with children walking by the house. That just brings feelings of love. I just look at my kitty and I feel love. I look at my daughter and I feel love. I um, see the different, my altar inspires love because of the different statues that I put there that, that connect me to my heart. So I think love is, is vi- many places, many, many places that we look.
0: Right. Do you see a difference between spirituality and religion?
2: Well, I think there's a dogmatic part of religion um that maybe is different than spirituality. I mean, it's um I think spirituality is kind of a bigger a bigger encompassment of uh encompasses more than just religion. Right.
0: In my last warm-up question, what do you think is the
2: purpose of life? I think we're here to learn and grow and transform. And um I think that we're yeah, I always look at life, it's kind of like a spiral. You know, we just keep going around that spiral, uh, except if we, if we, the same lessons keep coming around and around, but we're in like a different perspective as we integrate the different lessons that life brings to us. Then um, I like what Ram Dass says. He said, first, you know, I used to have monsters. I mean, he's no longer with <laughs> us, but now now I call them schmooze. So like once we work our, our lessons, um, they become smaller. and where something, you know, uh, kind of threw us off before. And now we can watch it go by and it doesn't affect us. So I think we're here to to learn and to learn how to love ourselves and to learn how to love one another through a series of lessons that have been perfectly designed for us.
0: I like that. I like that a lot, Sue. Perfectly designed, yeah, within its imperfections, right? So many... Perfectly
2: <laughs> yes,
0: exactly. Perfect imperfect, right?
2: Exactly. Yeah, that's beautiful.
0: So let's talk about your work. How did you become a writer?
2: Well, you know, it's funny and um, it's interesting because I I always loved to write. Um, I used to actually lead uh, yoga and creative writing retreats, and I study creative writing, um, and I love expressing through writing. But I never really um, thought of myself as a writer, that like as an author. But um, it mostly actually came just from my desire to help my students, because I loved restorative yoga. And um, in my first book, um, I just, it started as like a manual for my students to help them learn restorative yoga. And then um, I just decided, you know what, I'm going to make this into a book. I want to have something that can reach more people. I want to have something that's more formal. And so I just... Um, Put down It just like streamed through me. I was really ready to write that book. The chapters came through and I had been saving quotes and every quote matched up with each chapter. And it was just, that book was like a miracle. It was just like I was flowing down the river and everything came into place. And um, so, so yeah.
0: Wow. Yeah, I like that. Another word that's really wonderful, miracles. Yeah that's when we start flowing with life and being more receptive but in a way more giving right so just giving ourselves
2: yeah and i felt like that was like a sign because it was it came out so easily and all the pieces came into place and whenever i had a stumbling block the answer would come and it just felt like the wor- the, the world was just coming up to support me and uh, you know I, I so many things happened with the book that were just incredible. I was like, how did this happen? I was, I was trying to get the book loaded. Well, first I had the book with a publisher for about six months. And, um, and then at the end of the six months, I said, you know, it's just not, the book isn't exactly what we want. Um, so they let me go. But meanwhile, being with them for six months, I, they'd made a lot of suggestions. I'd made changes. And then, um, I finally just, they gave me some names of some publishing houses, but there was no connection. So I was like, you know if you if you don't know anyone you don't have an agent um like publishing houses don't really it's very rare that you can get your book published so I just decided to self-publish and um, I was having problems loading the book onto Amazon I was going through Crate space and I was leading a retreat a yoga retreat and at the end of the retreat I just made an announcement does anyone know someone who knows this this program inDesign because I'm having a problem loading it up onto Amazon and this woman in the group in the Training raised her hand. She goes, Oh, I work in that program and I'd be happy to help you. And so I went to her house and then she looked at my book. She said, Oh my God, because I had just downloaded InDesign a free version so I could just format my book on my own because I was doing it all just out of like a labor of love. And so I went to her house and she said, Wow, your book looks really good. But you know what? Why don't you just let me tweak it a little bit and I will, you know, make it look a little bit more professional. And so uh, she did. And we did a trade for classes and she helped me upload it. And that book actually has has been my miracle because uh, within like the first month it was selling in the top one hundred yoga books next to the books that I had had on my shelves for you know years next to Iyengar, next to Patabi Joyce next to all these teachers that I had you know looked up to there was my book selling next to them and I was like whoa <laughs> that book was just waiting and I it still is is a miracle to me
0: yeah how wonderful. So, what is restorative yoga?
2: Well, restorative yoga has become—it's really originated as part of the Iyengar system. Iyengar is one of the, the one of the main, big, famous, and most respected teachers of yoga, and um, he was the one that developed the use of props you know, bolsters and blocks. And he has lots of different props in the Angar system. There's many props that you can use so that anyone can do yoga. But there's was one part of what he developed, which was restorative yoga, which the way in the Angar t- tradition is uh, taught, there's many different ways of teaching restorative yoga, but the way that has come sort of Westernized and music, become basically like a style of yoga, um, is deep resting poses. Though not every pose in my book is a deep resting pose, um, but generally the restorative poses are deep resting poses held for a long time so that you can really drop in. And the longer I teach, I mean, there's so many ways to approach restorative yoga, but some of my classes where I used to teach maybe 10 poses or five poses, now maybe I only teach three poses because I the, the longer holding and the being present with that holding is a very restorative experience. So restorative yoga is about restoring yourself, about resting and regrouping and reconnecting in and dropping into a relationship with rest and calming the mind and calming the body. And um, yeah, it's a beautiful practice. Yeah, it very much sounds like
0: I wanted to try some of them. And I'm wondering, how do we choose? Because you just said that we don't need to use all of them, but some of them. So how do we choose which ones to use?
2: Well, that's an art of sequencing (laughs) in the the world. But, um, you know, you can take, take, uh, in in my book, probably any pose and and just try it. Um, But, um, you know, they're not so difficult to move in and out of Um, but a big part of being in restorative poses is the holding and how to attend to the mind because um, the mind is so you know we're so we have such busy minds so part of the restorative practice is learning how to work with the mind while you're resting in the poses I call the restorative practice an advanced practice because people think, it's just, what are you kidding? You're just laying around, you're not doing anything. But when you are just laying around, quote unquote, supposedly not doing anything, of course, what happens? The mind comes in. So it becomes a more advanced practice because you have to learn how to quiet your mind and understand how your mind works so that then you can rest because the body and the mind are so connected we're bridging that gap between body and mind and learning how to rest deeply. Mm. And part of that is quieting the mind.
0: Wow. I love that, Sue, because I have seen a lot of yoga practices becoming this sort of um, athletic or workout, intense workout, exercise type of a thing. And it's in a way it's putting more pressure um, I mean, it, cr- it creates presence because all kinds of exercise do that. But it has become many kinds of yogas have become or teachings or practices have become this body only or, or focus on the body looking perfect or fit, and and that's one of my questions about why are there so many kinds of yoga?
2: Well, you know, many of the yoga styles have been developed by particular. Um, people. So the Angar style is, you know, by Mr. Angar was a person. The Ashtanga style of yoga was Patabi Joyce. He developed these numbered various series. The Kripalu yoga was came down from Swami Kripalu. Shivananda was a man, you know, an Indian. Um, so all of these different styles um, basically are interpretations. Of the practice of yoga, and many of them come from the eightfold path of yoga, which many of them yoga is not just asana. Yoga is the yamas, the niyamas. Asana is just the postures. Pranayama, which is breath control. Pratyahara, which is withdrawal of the senses. Uh, Dharana, dhyana, and samadhi. So there's eight. There's eight uh, limbs of yoga, and So all of these different styles, quote unquote, styles are takes on these different on this on this way of of, um, the eightfold path. But what's happened is it's gotten very focused on the one limb of asana, posture, the practice of getting into. And it has become a very physical thing. And the the asana is is one is one way of, you know, um, approaching yoga through asana. And it has so many physical benefits. But um, yeah, there's some yogas that are more, much more physically uh, focused. Uh, meditation is actually a form of yoga. So when you're practicing meditation, you're actually practicing yoga, but people think of it differently. So yeah, there's a lot of styles because there's a lot of different sort of approaches to the practice of yoga. But I think they all are coming from the same place. And I think different people are attracted to different different ways of approaching the yogic path. Um, I think it's just, you know, resonating, seeing who you resonate with and what you resonate with. But I think that some of the gym, kind of gym yoga, isn't maybe exactly quote unquote yoga, but it's using yoga postures to create an athletic experience. Because the thing about yoga, yoga is bringing consciousness into the body. You want to bring consciousness into your practice. So how and bring that stillness, because I've practiced Ashtanga yoga and it was really hard and very physical. But to stay completely centered and connected to your breath while you're moving through the different asanas or postures, that became my practice of yoga when it became like more physical. But um, yeah, so the reason there's so many different styles is because there's so many different teachers. And actually, for every teacher, you could call that every single teacher is a style. I mean, I'm puja yoga because I'm puja and that's the yoga style that I teach um, because it's me. And I studied many different styles, but everyone, no matter how many styles they study, um, they still have themselves that they're bringing into the equation. So, right.
0: Yeah, Yeah, that makes so much sense. And speaking of puja, what is it? And what is the puja method?
2: (laughs) Yeah, well, (laughs) I lived in a yoga ashram for six years um, at Kripalu Center, which is on the East Coast in in Massachusetts. It it used to be an ashram way back when. And I lived there for six years and I was given that name puja. And puja is actually there's actually a puja ceremony. I was just actually in India for a month and I was in a lot of pujas and I was doing puja and being at pujas. And puja is a ceremony of worship. Um, and very simply, because when I was in India, it beca- it was a lot more complex. and There were a lot of um, the pujas that we were doing were very much more complex than the one that I've been practicing for so many years. Um, puja. The word puja means worship or to see the highest in everything, which is uh, kind of the, I like to, I like that kind of uh, definition of it because within each of us, there is divinity. And so when you're doing puja, usually uh, traditionally it's done to a statue, um, a Shiva lingam or a statue of somebody, uh, the divine mother or uh, some statue. These, um, statues are basically reflecting back to us parts of ourselves that we want to cultivate that we want that we are that are part of who we already are so puja the puja ceremony is actually offering the elements and i just talk about five elements earth air fire water and ether being prana and so um i actually do puja ceremonies in my trainings it's one of my favorite parts of the trainings is to do the puja ceremony and we do it to each other because, um, in each of us, we, each one of us are human, but we're also divine. And I think it's really important to be acknowledging that divinity within each of us to acknowledge that with one another. And so I'm not sure if I answered totally the question, but that's a little bit about.
0: (laughs) Yeah. You mentioned this in the, um, An introduction of your book about entering inside of our body. And then you talk about perceive and investigate, accept, relax. And then you also say something interesting, which is exactly what you have been talking about. Every body is sacred. So your book is for teachers and students. So you address this part of the teacher, touching students with consciousness so that is really interesting. And then you have kinds of touch, um, matching touch with students' needs, and then how to protect your body and energy when assisting students. Talk to me a bit about it, Sue.
2: Well, um, yeah, my, the way that I teach um, is with assists. Those are hands-on assists. Now, of course, I just want to comment before going on about talking about that. Is that we always ask if it's okay to touch because um, sometimes for some people uh, there has been trauma, and we always have to respect everybody where they are. So if someone was to say they didn't want to be touched for whatever reason, I would always, always respect that. And I always teach my teachers to always ask. But when I go to touch someone, I mean, this is a sacred being, and so we have to be very conscious of the way that we're touching, how we're touching, with what kind of intention are we touching. And so these are all things that, well, in my training, I talk about and we practice and we look at. Um, there's there's just even assist is not only hands-on. Assist is just being present with someone. That in itself is an assist. So an assist begins by your presence. And then you can actually just touch someone with your hand, or you can actually affect the movement of the positioning of the body or even the tissue if if that is what you are working with, depending on what's going on. For instance, if you have a student that you know holds a lot of tension in their shoulders, maybe, and I, I talk about very specifically, um, exactly different kinds of assists and how to touch people and where to touch people and Um, and because I'm also a massage therapist actually. And so, um, for my many years of doing body work, I've combined some of my simple, simple body work techniques into the assists that many people can do or everyone can do. But, you know, it takes practice because, um, when you're touching another body, that, that means that you're moving into another person's space. And so that has to be done with a lot of respect. And so we practice how to do that. And, it's something to be practiced and honored and done with respect and care.
0: I love that. And that makes me think about rituals. It's almost like a ritual in itself.
2: A ritual, yes. <laughs> I love that. Yeah,
0: it is. <laughs> yeah. And um, the way you say intention, so thought, the mind of the teacher um, needs to be prepared in a way. So, um Yeah, I really like that, and that brings me to my next subject about your book, which is very interesting. Chapter seven, where you explore the mind. I have some questions here. Uh, The first one has to be this one: What is the mind, and what are thoughts?
2: Okay. Well, I think I'm going to talk a little bit about the second question first. What are thoughts? And what I want to say about thoughts, and what I want to talk about is vibration, because every thought. Carries a vibration. So, um, and we are affected by vibration. So, if we were sitting in a room with two guitars on either side of the room and you stroke the E string on one guitar, the other guitar will start vibrating the E string without even touching it because we vibrate uh, everything in this world is vibrational. So, the mind and every thought is vibrational. And I think I, I there's a really great quote in my book from Deepak Chopra, but I can't think of it off the top of my head right now. But um, you know he says that every thought has a biological correlate. So because thoughts are vibrational and because everything is vibrational, thoughts affect our bodies, affect the way we feel. And that's something very unique about being a human is that we can choose by becoming conscious of our thoughts to change our thoughts. And that's one of the very powerful things about gratitude is that if you're not feeling well, if you're not feeling, if you're feeling down and you just looking around the room and think about what you are grateful for and, th- and just looking in your room, 10 things you're grateful for, you know, right now I have a candle burning and I'm grateful for that candlelight. Um, I'm grateful for my window. I have this beautiful view out my window. So, so many things right in our present moment. Where our attention goes, our energy flows. So where we put our attention is where our energy flows. So if we're constantly putting our thoughts into what's not working, what's not happening, how I'm feeling bad about this, how this is not good, oh, woe is me, then that's where our energy is going to go. But when we shift our thoughts to gratitude, what's working, what do I want to do, um, where do I want to go, what's my vision, then that's uplifting. And because everything is vibrational, when we are thinking and acting from that vibrational positive space and place, we then draw that vibrational positivity to us. So the mind is a tool. It's a tool for us to the mind is, you know, the mind is sacred also, but we have we can have consciousness brought to the mind to make conscious decisions when we are uh, aware. And that is a lot. Of, I talk about that also in the book, The Witness Consciousness. We want to know our mind. We want to understand our mind. We want to observe the patterns of our mind so that we can consciously choose the patterns and the direction that we want to go with the mind. Right. Yeah,
0: there's a, a section that you say there is a consciousness available to everyone that is free of conditioning. Yes. Like you just said about the attention, if we are putting the attention in the past, or future or negative, let's say, responses, then that will be really challenging to be conscious and present. Speaking of vibration, everything's vibration, energy, and we are all under this field of energy and vibration. So earlier in your book, I just mentioned before about the protecting the body, ourselves, and the energy field from these vibrations. How do we do that?
2: Well, you know, that's an an interesting, as anyone who has written a book before, what happens is kind of interesting because as you, Keep living and keep experiencing things. Things change, and um, there's many things in my book. I think I ne- maybe need to put out another edition. But um, the <laughs> the energies are not exactly. I mean, they can be in a way we look at them as harmful. But I think they're just different kind. They're just just different kinds of energy. And taking off like the judgment of if they're harmful or good or bad. There are certain energies that the, that maybe feel you know more comfortable to be sitting in. And there's people that are carrying around a lot of, of energy that is heavy, that can be heavy, that they, people can come into class angry, people can come into class many different ways. And because we're very all very sensitive, these energies can affect us and they do affect us. So um, there are techniques um, that I'd sometimes use. Um, it's rare that I don't um, wouldn't touch someone, but there have been a couple of times in class and I've taught so many, many, many classes, um, thousands of classes, that I would maybe not touch someone because I just felt like I was feeling very sensitive and their energy was not feeling aligned with what I wanted to cultivate inside of me. So maybe I didn't touch that person. Um, But so that's one way of protecting yourself is by not touching someone. Um, But there's ways, there are techniques like um, imagining white light around you, just that white light. White light is a very pure energy. So when negativity hits that, it can be dispersed. Um, Also after a class or after touching people, washing your hands, just for performing little rituals, washing your hands is a ritual and just energetically like releasing anything and let it go down the drain. Using your mind to just have the intention that anyone that I touch um, will, you know, the energy will be turned into love. Um, any negativity will go into light, um, will go to love. Just those kinds of little thoughts and intentions can protect you when you're interacting with people or sometimes you're even talking with someone that you don't feel um, you. the energy is something you want to be with. You can call in energies of love and light to come in, and it's incredible. You can see conversations change, energies change, things can shift by using your mind to help you create a different kind of energetic dynamic going on.
0: Yeah. So there are so many things we can do, which um, all make so much sense and and sound like common sense in a way. Yeah. I would like to talk about the immune system, stress, the immune system, and how restorative yoga can help us reducing stress and uh, strengthening the immune system.
2: Yeah, well, the the immune system and stress stress is a natural part of life, and there's nothing really wrong with stress. But what happens is when we're stressed continually, and what's happened, you know, in the Western world is that we're constantly under stress for so many different reasons, and a lot of the stress is actually going on in the mind. You know, there's not actually um, some a danger present, but because we have fears and we have pressures and we worry and we end up um living in the fight and flight syndrome, which was basically set up you know, as a survival instinct you know a long time ago, um, so that we could like run and get away from danger but the way we're living, we're kind of having that we're activating that system just by the way we're living in the world and in traffic and getting frustrated and aggravated though I think I'm hoping that this whole coronavirus is going to, Calm us down a little bit because we've all had to stay home more. But um so but what happens is there's the stress response and then there's the relaxation response. And the relaxation response is what restorative yoga addresses, it helps us activate the relaxation response. And the way the relaxation response works is that just by changing the normal Patterns, thought patterns, and stressful patterns that we fall into, habitual patterns, by focusing on the breath, bringing ourselves into the moment, giving the mind something else to focus on instead of the normal um, patterns that we go through or that we're that we're doing every day, that breaks the stress response. And what happens is when we're in the stress response, instead of the body being able to Um, have a strong immune system, what happens is it weakens the immune system because the energy is going into the, taking care of the stress response. Instead of um, when we're calm, then the body can react and bring more healing into the moment so that we can be living in more homeostasis. When we're stressed, then we're in the stress response. But when we're relaxed, then we move into the relaxation response And then the body calms down, the heart rate slows, the mind quiets. And from that place, healing happens and on many different levels. So that's kind of what happens with the restorative practice. We slow everything down and we touch into a deeper, quieter place.
0: Yeah, I love the way you connect thoughts to the breath. And um, in a way, it makes me think about uh, meditation. It's almost breathing. The breathing techniques are actually uh, more effective than meditating.
2: Well, breathing techniques can be a part of meditation. There's many. There's actually many meditations that include breathing techniques. But that's one of my favorite techniques: is connecting thoughts and breath. And that really came to me from Thich Han, who I is one of my teachers who I adore. And he um, talks about and has there's a beautiful book, The Blooming of the Lotus. um and he he in that book, um, he has many, many different vignettes of breathing in peace and exhaling tension. and many he has a it's a beautiful uh, collection. But I just use simple um, things like that, breathe in, relaxation exhale tension or breathe in compassion or breathe in loving loving kindness and send that loving kindness out to other people who might need it or send that loving kindness on your exhale to all the cells of your body. So I love to link the breath with thoughts because it engages the mind and it brings those vibrations and helps people to shift into, again, a more peaceful space, a more positive place. In the, in their moment,
0: right. Oh, I absolutely love that, and it's amazing how effective it is. And it's for relaxation; it happens so fast.
2: Yeah, you just like four. I like to use the number four. It works quite well because it's enough time that the mind can still follow the thoughts, but it's not um, long enough that the mind starts wandering too much. So, but within four breaths, just focusing on the sensation of the breath entering and exiting, which is really the basis of Vipassana meditation, you can just calm the mind right down because the mind is always either in the future or the past, but the breath is in the moment. So when And the body's in the moment. So that's the power of yoga. That's the difference between yoga and, you know, exercising like gym exercise, because in yoga you're bringing conscious awareness to what you're doing. So that is... Like, kind of the key difference between yoga and some kind of exercise program. So when you're bringing consciousness to your breath, consciousness to your mind, consciousness to your body, then you're then you're practicing yoga. because yoga mean yoga means union, so you're unifying body, mind, and spirit, right.
0: Do you see a difference between the states of calm and relaxation and peace? Well, I think
2: calmness and relaxation are peaceful states. I think when we feel calm, we feel more at peace. And when we're relaxed, we feel more at peace. So when we're cultivating calmness and relaxation, then we are moving more into inner peace.
0: Right. I like that. Yeah. And also, how is being mindful different from being aware?
2: It's pretty similar, actually. Mindfulness is awareness, but I kind of like one of my students said to me one time, you know, instead of mindfulness, I like to think of it as heartfulness. And I kind of like that because it's kind of mindfulness, but from a heartful place. So you're bringing in that energy of compassion and kindness as you become mindful or aware of what's happening in any given moment. So I think mindfulness and awareness are, you know, they're kind of synonyms, synonyms. Right. Say that word.
0: So I have a few more questions for you, Sue. Before I ask them about your new book, that's one. Before that, you said something, there's a section in your book that's very interesting about uh, staying, uh, I think you say staying out of uh, our personal story. What do you mean by that?
2: Well, I think uh, we sometimes can get into a story that we start telling um, over and over again. And it keeps us trapped. We can get fall into a kind of a victim thing. Oh, this happened to me. Um, my mother died when I was young, my son died, my whatever, whatever the story is for whatever person, um, we can get kind of attached to that story and it becomes sort of like our story of who I am. And that is really the story is things that have happened to us, but they don't need to define us and we can move beyond our story. We're much more than our story. So um, sometimes people just kind of get caught up in their story, what happened to them, and I can do it too. Um, You know, something happens, you know, somebody pulled out in front of me, and then I'm telling everyone, oh, someone pulled out in front of me, I almost had an accident. But you can (laughs) just say it once, and it goes away. But if we keep going over it, it's the same kind of idea of where your attention goes, your energy flows. So yeah, sometimes we need to just sort of, you know, vent or just have someone listen to us. But when it becomes repetitive over and over again, sometimes it's not serving us and we need to shift our attention in a different direction because actually the mind, you know, is filled with neural pathways. And what happens when we tell that story over and over again is we build a neural highway in our head, in our brain. And those neural highways can be detrimental to us so we can actually shift to a different way of thinking and build new neural highways so that those become habitual, the positive thoughts, instead of going into the story that maybe isn't as supportive as we might like it to be.
0: Right. And the best way of doing that is staying present, isn't it? In the moment. Yes, you can. If you
2: can, that's, that's great. If, you can, if we
0: that's, can. <laughs> as much <laughs> as you can. That's true. <laughs> So it, it, that's the practice. Yeah, let's use that term. Yeah, that will be the practice for life in a way. Do you think that there is a point where we can get to that state of mind of presence constantly or it will be a practice for life for all of us human beings?
2: I don't know. I, I think we can get into, I can, we can definitely have moments of presence. And I don't know, maybe enlightened people are con- always in a complete presence in every moment. Uh, maybe that's enlightenment. I don't know, but um, I, I know we can have moments of presence. So that's good enough for me. And yes, I think it's, it's a lifelong journey to be, come, be present. I mean, that's, that's where I love to live in present moment, but we're not always there. It's, it's hard because there's, it's, not, it's not that simple.
0: Yeah, that's true. But then when we are on the path of love, as you mentioned before, then it's easy to remember and choose love moment by moment.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's not that simple and it is simple, but, you know, it's easy to get caught up in the day-to-day and many things that come in. But yes, I agreed. That is true. Yeah.
0: Uh, Maybe if we see even those things, the imperfections as love, might be a good way of uh, even getting deeper into it, (laughs) seeing everything as love.
2: (laughs) Absolutely. I agree. It is. Everything is.
0: (laughs) And it is, right? Yes. What is now love? And um, my last question has to do with your new book, 93 Prescriptions for Joy in Nature. Talk to me about your new book.
2: It's 93 Prescriptions of Joy, Cultivating Moments of Joy and Inner Peace. Um, so it's basically a collection of prescriptions for joy. Um, and some of them are about connecting with nature. And some of them are about connecting with family. And some of them are about connecting with yourself. And some of them are about connecting or Adventures. There's all different prescriptions and ideas of how to create joy in your life, and everything from watching a sunset to um, hugging a tree, or learning how to talk nicely to yourself. And so, they're just like ideas and inspirations to create more joy in our lives. And so, I mean, I just I really wrote that book from my heart and I just hope that it will inspire people and it will bring more joy onto the planet. That's my, my intention with that book, to bring more joy to people individually and on the planet.
0: What a wonderful intention to have. So um, a correction about the, um, the title of your new book, the part that you sent to me, that is just the, the chapter two, right Sue? So.
2: Right, exactly. Chapter two is about connecting to nature.
0: Everything that you say here, it kind of uh, brings us back to the uh, that idea or ideal of self-love, doesn't it?
2: Yes, that's like a big thing that I'm into um, and practicing more and more is how do we love ourselves? Not in a selfish way, but it's really, you know, that's something, an ongoing journey of mine because I have been so outwardly focused on helping other people, taking care of other people. And a lot of more recent years has been about turning inward and really loving myself. And when I'm loving myself, then I can make choices from a place of centeredness within myself, not in a selfish way, but in a way of knowing and taking care of my own needs, being kind and loving with myself so that then I'm filled to be able to help others.
0: Yeah, because in a way we cannot give what we don't have. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so would you like to add anything or read a passage in your book before I ask you my final questions?
2: Um, I just wanted to say one more thing about self-love. And loving ourselves is not you know, just loving the beautiful parts, but it's really being able to embrace every single part of who we are, the light and the dark. And when we can hold all of who we are in that light of love, that is a really beautiful thing. And that is what I try to teach and make space for in myself and teach in my classes and in my trainings, how to be create space so that we can embrace all of us. Because when we can embrace all of us, then we're at peace with every part of us. And then we are in that space of presence and in that space of love when nothing is really um, bothering us because we've loved every.
0: Wow, so true. Nothing is rejected because now we are embracing life as a whole, not the fragmentation, the parts of life. Right. That seems to be the real practice of love, right, in general. So, my final questions to you, I guess I'll pick some of them here. How do you define success? What is to be successful to you?
2: To be successful is. Yeah, to be content, to have friends, to, to be sharing, sharing love and sharing friendship and sharing, um, I mean, for me, success is when students also in, in the terms of my, in my work is, you know, when people are, are transforming, when I see people transforming, when I see people finding themselves and I see people, um, Understanding something that they didn't understand to me that is so gratifying. If I can help one person to, you know, move more into that loving space, I hate to be like using that word like a cliche, but um, but to move into more love within themselves, to to discover something, to be become uh, to see people become more conscious, to pe- see people open and transform into a a bigger part of themselves or understanding themselves more fully. That is success for me. Um, I, I don't have, I'm very, very happy to, uh, we can talk about financial re- success. Um, you know, I, that's part of it, but it's not my focus. Um, but success for me is, you know, being balanced and having, you know, community and love and having time for myself and having time for my family and for my friends and finding that balance of, of work and play and enjoying life. Yeah.
0: Yes, yes, a thousand times.
2: <laughs>
0: um, what was the hardest lesson to learn about yourself as of today?
2: The hardest lesson to learn about myself? Jeez. we got these questions, so these questions are hard, you know? <laughs> um, That's cute. <laughs> you know, I think, you know, being... Um, Totally honest, I think one of the hardest things for me in my life is that I've always, I never felt feel like I have been able to. I mean, it's to have a partner in my life that has been a partnership. I've never been had had a relationship that's really been a partnership. I've really had difficulty in intimate relationships, and so uh, that's just been a struggle for me. And I've had to kind of accept that and be open to that's possibly a possibility in the future, but um, that maybe being in relationship isn't the thing that is what I need to be doing in this life. Maybe that's not my path.
0: Yeah. Yes. I don't know. That's that's one thing that's difficult for me. It seems like I feel the same way (laughs) about yeah, about not being a mother because I was uh, was always open to it. So it never happened. So that's interesting when you say it's not a path for me, yeah, in this lifetime. So that might be the case. Oh. <laughs> um, we all have our, our purposes, right? Unique gifts, yeah, in
2: paths. Yes. I always thought I was going to have two kids and I have one, and I'm very grateful for her. But, you know, life is what happens when we're busy making plans, so...
0: <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. That's for sure. What is another word for
2: healing, Sue? Well, the word for healing is could be. What comes to me is acceptance is a way of healing. Just accepting what is is a kind of a healing. Healing. I don't know. Do you
0: have one? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's why I ask uh, a question because I don't. yeah So many come. So many words come to mind. Um, yeah. But I I love listening to some of these ideas.
2: Yeah, and I love being asked questions too because um, it brings things out of me and I always appreciate that because it's just inspiring. And um, yeah, I I really enjoy talking to you.
0: yeah. The same here. I have two more questions. One, two. Yeah. One, the last one is a technical question. So if you knew you would die soon, meaning leaving the body, would you make any change in your life or do anything differently?
2: It's interesting because I'm recently working with a couple of very dear friends who are, yeah, they're having, that they have cancer and, you know, life ending is becoming a reality for them and some, at some level, um, and I've been watching, you know, how they are. Um, I don't know that I would change the way I'm living. I mean, I would just want to be, you know, with friends and loved ones and maybe travel back to India. I don't know. I, I don't know that I would change so much. I'm sure I would maybe stop trying to figure out how to make a living, but I'm not sure how I would change, what I would change so much. I'm, I feel like I'm living where I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, and I don't know how that would Really change that so much?
0: Yeah, I love that when we reflect upon these questions and then the answer is like, "Yeah, I wouldn't change much" or "I wouldn't change anything." That's when we know, right? Uh, do you believe in life after death?
2: I don't believe. Well, I don't know if I believe in life after death. I believe that we have. Um, I believe that we have a soul and that we reincarnate. Um, I think I have more of a kind of a a Hindu sort of karma, you know, um, idea about life and death. I definitely, I definitely believe that there's a spirit and a soul that is beyond this body. I mean, I've seen that in birth and in death where, you know, but particularly in just, I just, I just feel that I believe in reincarnation, that we come back and that we come here to, Learn certain things and then we leave and then we come back again. I don't know exactly how it all works, but I do believe that there's a soul, yeah, and that we come back. Yes, I do believe in more than one life.
0: What are three things about life you know for
2: sure? Let me see breath is life, we are interdependent on this earth, that everything is connected, and that that we need the elements to live and we are connected with the elements and we need them to live. Yeah.
0: Thank you so much for this conversation, Sue. It has been genuine, peaceful, meaningful. I love your wisdom. Thank you. It can be felt, not just heard.
2: Mm, Thank you so much for the opportunity. I'm so, so grateful.
0: Where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services, and future projects?
2: Thank you. I My books are, well, my first book is on Amazon. My second book will be there in like a week or two. I'm just finishing the last parts of it. I can be found on the web at uh, suflam.com or pujayoga.net. And I'm on Instagram and also on Facebook. So um, if you look for me, if you Google me, you'll find me. <laughs> and I'd love, I would love to hear from anybody.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much again, Sue. And we'll talk soon.
2: Thanks so much. Bye
0: for now. Bye for now.
1: Thank you for listening. To learn more about Sue Flam, please visit her website, sueflam.com. To learn more about
0: this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members, Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, Terry Clayton, and Aidan Bigrock. Thank you again for listening, and bye for now.